My name is Angela Cox and I am the Mindset Mentor and this is the Mindset Mentor Meets podcast. Now my aim is to discover and share the secrets of success. You'll hear engaging and uplifting interviews with business leaders at the top of their game, all primed to deliver bucketfuls of value and inspiration. We'll bring practical tips, success strategies and golden nuggets of motivation to help you unleash your absolute potential. Now, please do like, share and leave a review if you love this podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thanks for listening and let's jump in now and meet this week's fabulous guest. My guest today is Cindy Butts. Now, what a woman she is for one woman. She is the commissioner at the Criminal Cases Review Commission and is known for her extensive work in social justice and governance and as well as in diversity and inclusion. I think we're in for a real treat today. This is going to be special and I'm certainly in for some personal learning too. So I can't wait to talk to you, Cindy. I know that you've been up to your eyes in home improvements this morning. So how is it going for you today? (laughs) Well, it's going well. Unfortunately, the weather hasn't helped. So my carpenter came yesterday, came today done a little bit indoors, couldn't finish off the work outside and decided, well, it's raining, so I'm off, love. He's really quite pleased that he can have the day to himself. So he's left with a smile and I wave goodbye to him with a grumpy face, but he's back (laughs) tomorrow. You're speaking with me and I'm so glad that you are because I think it's going to be amazing. Now, we always start the podcast with what I call the shake your pom-poms moment. So this is all about you being able to celebrate your own personal successes and share with us, if you don't mind, your three proudest moments. I think I'd probably start with my experience of secondary school. So I grew up in Shepherd's Bush in West London and I went to school on the White City Estate. And at the time it was very much regarded as the worst school in Britain. So it was one of those secondary schools where it was the first to ever have what they called the superhead, you know. So, you know, an individual would come in and turn around a failing school, be paid lots of money. It's now Phoenix rising out the ashes. But when I was there, let's just say it was kind of burning. (laughs) You know, so the emphasis wasn't on high achieving, academic achievement. It was much more, what would I say, more focused on crowd control. I mean, it was a tough school and there weren't many high expectations of pupils and certainly not of me. So I left school with very few qualifications to speak of, you know, a couple of Ds and a a few Cs really. So I was always really behind my peers in that respect. I was a little bit gobby, a bit mouthy. And so I was behind my peers and suddenly, I don't know what it was, I had a light bulb moment and I began to mature and take my studies really seriously. But by then it was too late. So I then had to catch up. So I went and done my A-levels and then I found myself applying for university and got into SOAS, which is the School of Orange and African Studies, London University, top Russell Group institution. 
and I studied social anthropology and politics there. So I guess that was a really big achievement of mine and really proud, and I know my mum was really proud. What was the turning point there that took you from that, what you might class as underachievement, having been in this tough environment that didn't welcome any aspiration, to you deciding, I'm going to go and make that happen and go to uni? I think it was a combination of things. As I said, maturing. I mean, when I look back at some of my school reports, it was all, oh, Cindy has the ability, but if she'd only stopped clowning about. And I think I was influenced by the environment around me, even though I had a really positive environment in terms of my mom and her parenting and how she brought me up. But I guess that the stronger pull for me at that time, I think, was those that I were around. And I think I matured. I think I sought out role models and was very determined to find people who I wanted to emulate and in some way I could be inspired by. So So inspirational. So that's my pom-pom number one moment. And when I left university, my first job was actually working in Parliament. I was a researcher for an MP who was actually at the time the chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party. So was very influential in Labour politics. And uh, I later became a researcher for the Economic Secretary of the Treasury. And that was my very first proper job. And <laughs> absolutely loved it and found it really fascinating and challenging because I'd always been interested in politics. And when I left that, I became a, a member of the Metropolitan Police Authority. So this was in 2000. This was just after the Matt Ferson report into the tragic racist murder of Stephen Lawrence. And Matt Ferson, as had previously Lord Scarmouth, said that the Metropolitan Police Service ought to have an independent body that would oversee, that would have strategic responsibility. So it was brand new. It was, you know, highly anticipated, lots of expectations. And I decided to apply for it, having had lots of years of experience in the community, but didn't really expect to get it. And I did. And so here I was, the youngest member of a police authority ever in the entire country, or female member, I should say. And here I was, overseeing the Metropolitan Police Service, incredibly important policing, as we know, to society and protecting the public with a budget of something like £3.2 billion, a staffing complement of over 33,000 people, holding the most senior individuals of that organisation to account, like the commissioner. And here I was, little old young black Cindy from Shepherd's Bush, with this incredibly responsible job. And so I would say that's my second pom-pom moment, not forgetting it actually, it's actually what I achieved in. And so... That's incredible. Yeah. So I was given the, the ability to influence change in a way that very few people get to. And how old were you at this point? In your 20s, are we talking? I was, yeah. I was 24 at the time. And tell me, right, when you get that job and you step into those shoes for the first time and realise the enormity of that role and the responsibility that you have, almost like the voice. How did you cope with that? How did you take that on and own it? Oh, wow. I think it's a number of things. I think, firstly, 
you know, I had a great role model in my mum. You know, when my mum came here from Guyana in the 60s, she was in her early 20s. And she settled in Labrock Grove. And she soon became really concerned about a number of things, including the way in which young black men were stopped and searched under the SUS laws. She was concerned about school exclusions, young black kids being excluded, housing issues. And so she very much took it upon herself without having been introduced or or being invited, I should say, to the table. She took it upon herself to, to be an activist and to be a voice for... I guess the voiceless, or, or for those who had a voice but they weren't being heard. And so, you know, I took inspiration from her as a single parent as well. You know, she was bringing up four of us on her own. Wow. So, yeah, so I, I took a lot of inspiration from her. I remember when many a time when we were young, the doorbell would ring all hours of the night. Miss Butts, we've heard about the good work you do. Can you help? You know? Whether it was an Irish family living six of them to one room or a black mother whose son had just been arrested. So that was the kind of socially conscious, egalitarian to her core, wanting to do for her community that I kind of adopted that. Such a selfless thing to do as well for no... no remuneration, I suppose, financially. It was just something that she took upon herself to do. All necessarily recognition. She was an agitator. She would take the four of us and say, you're having the day off school. We'd be thinking we'd go for a lovely day out. And she'd say, make us do a sit-in at the local police. <laughs> you know, I remember the four of us, four little black girls pissed off because we wanted to have a day off school. And she'd say, they're not, those little girls aren't moving until the borough commander comes and talks to me, explains why X is in, you know, has been arrested. So that's the inspiration. Coming back to your question, Angela, I mean, shit scared, basically, is the answer. That sense of vulnerability of of being the only or very few people of colour that might be around the table of my age and, you know, my ethnicity and my working classness, you know? When I think back, I actually think that that's a, a sort of thread that runs through my entire experience of that vulnerability in a sense of perhaps you've got no right to be here, but yet you've got every right to be here. You're different, but embrace that difference and lean into your vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't the finished article then and I'm not the finished article now. What I know is that when I believe in something and I feel like I've got something to offer and to make a change, don't wait until you're 100%. You've got the opportunity now. Go for it and learn on the job. Oh, I love that. Learn as you go. Learn through doing. Yeah, as hard as that might be because there is that insecurity there. But you've got to embrace the insecurity and say, actually, with the opportunity comes a responsibility. And you had the voice and you have the voice still and you're helping those people who can't be heard to be heard. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge privilege as well as a responsibility, isn't it? 
absolutely gorgeous and a lovely story about your mum as well and just such a remarkable woman no wonder you are as as wonderful as you are and so I can't wait to hear what the third one is going to be sorry we're still on to number three yeah so I guess that the next one is when I became a commissioner of the independent police complaints commission So that's all about investigating police officers for the most serious and sensitive wrongdoing, anything from corruption to abusing their power for sexual gain to deaths in custody. I mean, really tough, difficult things Mm. that you're having to deal with. I had the responsibility of investigating a police officer who had shot a young black man in the Tottenham area really, really sensitive. It was, you know, the same area in which another young black man, Mark Duggan, had been shot. And tensions were building and rising. It was like a pressure cooker, you know, this lack of trust between the community and the police. Lots of concern about what had happened to him and how he met his death. And so I had responsibility for this. And I made a decision to go and speak to the community about his death. It was very early on. The Met were dead against me going to speak to communities. But I knew in my heart of hearts it was the right thing to do, to be able to explain, to not leave a vacuum, because when you leave vacuum, people fill it, and it just raises the stakes. And so I chose to go and speak to hundreds of people in a packed-out town hall in Tottenham with the media assembled there, local media, national, international media assembled. So it was about explaining what had happened, but also to explain that I had made quite an unprecedented decision to arrest the officer for murder, because that's where the evidence had, had led me. And so there was lots and lots of tension. And there was a real fear, and I had a real sense, that if this tension wasn't dealt with, that there could potentially be a riot. There was a riot in Tottenham and spread throughout the country in 2011. And so I held firm to that view. And I guess for me, why it was one of my proudest moments, because I I know that my actions prevented something really terrible from happening. I know that I was able to bring my years of experience to bear, my community grounding and sense of responsibility to the community, my kind of strategic understanding, my communication skills, to bring them all into one place and for it to have a massive impact. So that's why I'm really proud of that. And it's always difficult to claim for success for something that didn't happen. I but know preventative thing yeah. is so key. So I'm really you know, proud of my handling of that. Yeah, uh, I'm the not case sure. is actually going through the courts at the moment, so I, I can't say anything about the actual case itself. But I am proud of my handling of that. So heart-led, though, and so intuitive in your style in terms of feeling what is the right thing to do in the moment and and for many that is such a difficult task because there isn't a process or a rule book 
that says what you need to do next mm-hmm. and and it brings me to where we are at the moment I suppose in society and and I am not anywhere near an expert in this so I really want to be careful about what I say because I do have a lack of education around it but I think the whole Black Lives Matter your voice in that must be so needed but I can imagine equally it must become quite exhausting to constantly have to educate to constantly have to bring people along and help people understand how do you find the oomph inside of you to keep going yeah it's a good question I mean if I'm honest you know the events over the last few weeks have I felt really quite conflicted. So on the one hand, this sort of sense that the world has woken up to the fact that Black Lives Matter. You know, it's been my life and many who I know and have worked with. It's been our lives forever. You know, it's, it's, we've fought for this, we've argued for it. It's been my life's work. It's there for everybody to see, it's in the stats. Who gets stopped and searched? Disproportionality around stop and search, the overrepresentation of young black men in prison, in our institutions, the disproportionality in terms of school exclusions, in terms of health outcomes, poverty, housing. It's in the stats, but it's also in our culture, it's in our music, it's in our poetry. It's in our literature. So so on the one hand, I think, what? You know, you've only just woken up to this fact. And in in some ways I felt, just because you're ready to talk about it, I must be ready to talk about it when I've been talking about it and doing something about it for so many years. So on the one hand, there is that conflict about, what? Only now? Where have you been? But on the other hand, I also recognise it's, it's an opportunity. Never have I in my lifetime experienced the collective sense of wanting to understand, to have discussions, uncomfortable discussions, people wanting to learn and to educate. So on the one hand, I think, sod you. <laughs> on the other hand, I think, Cindy, this is an opportunity and we need to grab it because it won't be here forever. And it's an opportunity to really influence that change. So it leads to change, but not just talk and discussion. So I have grappled with that, but I'm over it now. And and I'm into how do we make change? I'm into, you know, listening to people who really want to make a difference. But it has to be about making I've seen all the fancy statements. That's great. Make the statement, fine. But really what matters is, are you going to affect change? What's going to be different? Are you truly committed? We need long-term sustainable change. But it can happen with people, with your passion and your integrity and your knowledge and learning, helping those of us who are 25 steps behind take that leap forward and truly understand and I think for many it isn't necessarily about the lack of positive intention it is the lack of education that's certainly my experience and 
being able to talk to people like you who have that deep understanding of what it feels like and you being able to articulate that through storytelling and help me understand what it feels like to be in your shoes is remarkably powerful and something that I haven't been exposed to in the past. And perhaps that's because I haven't chosen to, you know, who knows what's going on internally, but to be able to feel through your story is hugely powerful and helps me. So I know that it's going to help the people that are listening as well. So it's really valuable to be able to learn from your experience. And I'd like to go into... to be coupled, Angela, with you understanding your, your power, your influence, your privilege, the systems, how things interconnect. This isn't easy. It's tough work. Roll up your sleeves. Get ready for ups and downs, because there will be ups and downs. Progress just doesn't happen in one linear way. You know, there will be ups and downs and get ready all that hard work because it is hard one of the things that we talk about in the podcast a lot is how do you cope with adversity and things that happen to you that make you stronger and shape the person that you are today now I know that you touched on some of them in terms of your experiences at school but are there any others that you can share with us that'll help us understand you know what you've been through and and how that shaped the person that you are yeah, I've got quite a few experiences of having quite negative experiences and kind of expectations, if you like. And as you say, you know, school, I guess, was my number one really difficult experience. But I guess I've had a, a number of different ones. I would point probably to, oh, I'd say when I carried out my role as a commissioner at the IPCC, as I say, it was, you know, it was dealing with really difficult issues, serious and sensitive issues. Often, in, you know, we would say we were in the business of death because it was usually when somebody had died that you would really become involved. And so that six years in which I was a commissioner, whilst I was really quite proud of the things that I had accomplished, not enough, you know, I think there were limitations and structural barriers that meant I couldn't do more than I wanted to. But what I would say is that was the most difficult role I'd ever done. And I only realised just how difficult it was when I left it. And so when I left in, when was it, 2017-18, I realised just how much it had affected me. And I often talk when I speak to people publicly about my career and my experiences, I often talk about this thing, what I call the emotional and spiritual tax that being in a minority can often place on you. So being a black woman, working class woman, dealing with issues that really do, they affect everyone, of course. But when you're seeing young black men who have been stopped and searched or died in police custody or subject to a police shooting, that affects you. That affected me deeply. And I knew it when I was in it, but I really understood just how much it affected me when I left. And also, I would say, working inside the system has been a difficult experience. 
So I've always been one of those people who are really keen to be in, in it and seek to change it from within. I think there's absolutely a place for people like my mom, you know, who yeah. wasn't in it, who worked from the outside. But when you work from the inside, you are, on the one hand, you've got the difficulties internally within the organisation, working in a white-dominated, you know, mostly middle-class kind of environment setting, and the difference that comes with, the difficulties that come with that. But on the other hand, you've got a sense of people from the outside attacking you for working inside. So you have a sort of tussle, you know, trying to make things different, but people sometimes seeing you as either tokenistic or being a part of the problem. Huge amount of pressure on your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I found that experience of working as a commissioner at the IPCC incredibly difficult, given the issues we were dealing with and trying to make a difference, trying to change the system from within, yet trying to remain true to myself, my roots, my intensely community-orientated kind of perspectives. Mm. Um, so it's that kind of what I would describe as pushing water uphill. Yeah. So it's like a, an almost impossible task. And there's an element in there around kind of the trauma parts of it as well that you're exposed to when you talked about how you can take that on emotionally obviously you you were able to recognize after you left the impact that that had how do you protect yourself from that now because you're still exposed to things that must be difficult to see and hear and read about so how do you take care of yourself and your own well-being well I walk a lot nice um, I, I, I love walking I dance a lot I love music I absolutely, everything from, you know, hip-hop to jazz to raga to, you know, you name it. And I love to dance. So I, I just find that a real sort of way of me. A release. I find solace in my family and comfort in spending time with my family and my friends. And I guess maintaining a rootedness in the community and a real sense of purpose so what keeps me going is knowing that, that I haven't got there. I don't see myself as being successful because I don't see there being an end game. I see this as a journey, as a process. And what keeps me going is knowing that there's work to do. It ain't done yet. My mum, you know, and her work and wanting to continue her legacy, I know she's incredibly proud of me. She'll also say, you ain't finished, you know, and this constant sense of wanting to be involved, to influence, to represent people's views, that keeps me going. And dare I say it, wine, you know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know it's not, you know, it's in the kind of mindful, in the sense of mindfulness and sort of well-being no one really ever says that but wine keeps me going and I find inspiration from you know from people who I admire who are those people have you got any anyone that's kind of really influenced you other than your mum in terms of that kind of role model or somebody that you have admiration for 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in absolute awe of Angela Davis, black American activist, just eloquent and has an intellect to die for, faced adversity at such a young age. You know, she was in her, what was it, early 20s when the FBI deemed her to be public enemy number one. She went into hiding and stood up for what she believed in and emerged from that as the most incredible academic author, writer, um, just a humanist. Just so, so I take lots of inspiration from her and May Angelou, who, you know, who was mute as a child and didn't have a voice, who was raped as a child who, you know, again, became this phenomenal woman, recognised globally for, again, her, her intellect, her wisdom, her writing. So those are my two... Oh, oh sorry, I should say Serena Williams. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, girl crush alert, Serena Williams. I mean, again you know, the adversity she faced in early life, you know, and I'm sure the lack of expectation, you know, growing up in Compton, her father teaching her and her sister how to play tennis, having to battle through the middle-class white establishment that is tennis, and being so unashamedly herself. And she absolutely smashed it. And continues to. So, as yeah. do you. I love the fact that you just said before that I, I don't consider myself to have, you know, found the success yet and I need to keep going. I'm like completely in awe of you and all of your success. It's incredible what you've achieved. And I just know that, you know, in the years to come, you know, when you talk about your heroes, you will be one of those for, for the young people that are coming through now because of your voice and your presence and this desire you have to make a difference. It's, it's so inspirational. And I'm going to put a little bit of pressure on you now because we're at the point in the podcast where we play the game. And the game is the five-second game rule. It's my daughter's favourite game, so we must play it. So you need to give me three answers in five seconds to a question i know the eyes are going wide are you ready for the pressure three answers to each question three answers in five seconds okay let's do it so in the five second game rule can you give me three things that you are grateful for oh my family my friends and water for life Easy answers, easy answers. And then the second one, in the five-second game rule, can you give me three things that you'd take to a desert island? Uh, Miles Davis. Oh, God, more Miles Davis. <laughs> um, some Maya Angelou. And wine. <laughs> and, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, actually, no, no, no. I need something stronger than that. Some good old <laughs> Demerara Guyanese rum for me. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. 
Brilliant. I love that. A bit of rum. Can't beat it. And then um, our final question today is all about actually the secret of success, because people want to know from individuals what they believe the secret of success is. And you're not done with yours yet, but you've learned a lot over the years. So what do you think is the absolute secret? Oh, I, I couldn't tell you what the absolute secret is. I know what I admire in all of the women that I've talked about. I know that I admire resilience, a sense of purposefulness, selflessness, commitment, hard work, the courage to be oneself. I think that's probably it. And courage to be oneself. And, and that's something I've, I've learned over time, that actually it's no use me being there unless I bring my difference, unless I bring me and my lived experience. I'm not interested in representation for representation. So, you know, when we talk about women on boards and, you know, more underrepresented groups, no, I want to know that you're intellectually and culturally a woman that you're intellectually and culturally black. It's no use you being there if you, only act, if you act and bring to the table what the men bring. So this real sense of bringing that to the table, I think, is really important. And I've learned how to do it. And I do it more and more, unashamedly. But it's a two-sided coin. It's also about organisations, companies, society. And exactly, allowing you you know, to bring that, to create the environment and the culture to be able to bring yourself to the table. I talk about retiring the actress and taking off the mask. And I think that's your getting at there, that just the courage to just be you and not play a role, not act your way through and not be what others perhaps expect you to be. And the more that we can do that, and I think you're right, it's something that you learn to do. And it's something that you develop the courage to do over time as we get older. And it's something that I'm learning to do over the last three or four years. And it's something that you're clearly leading the way on. So just thank you for being so open, so honest and so willing to share the things that you've experienced and, and just some of the wonderful work that you've done. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thank well, you so much. Fine. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Angela. I do hope that you enjoyed listening to the Mindset Mentor Meets podcast. If you did, be sure to check out the show notes to access all of those important links. For more about me, visit my website at www.angela-cox.co.uk. Now, I'd really love it if you could subscribe to our channel so that you never miss an episode. And do leave us a five-star review because it really helps us to get noticed. Bye for now. I do hope that you'll tune in next week and take good care.